When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to, uh, to talk again to Adnan Rashid. You're most welcome, Adnan. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for having me again. Pleasure. Now, Adnan, as I'm sure you know, is a lecturer, historian, traveler. He's traveled a lot recently and, like me, a bibliophile. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter. Uh, his handle is Mr. Adnan Rashid. And you can see his regularly updated content on his YouTube channel. I do recommend you subscribe. Today, we are going to talk about those books that have made a significant difference to our thinking and that we recommend to others. We have each chosen 10 books to briefly discuss. Uh, we'll try and limit uh, ourselves to three minutes for each book, although I'm not going to originally um, hold to that. Um, so, I, I don't know, what would be your uh, first choice of, of book that you treasure and that you might recommend to other people? Okay, thank you for uh, allowing me this opportunity, Paul, once again to speak to your audience. And it's always an honor to uh, be with you and talk to our uh, brothers and sisters, our, uh, let's say, academic fraternity and people who are interested in books and things academic for that matter. Mm -hmm. So it's always an honor to be with you. Uh, I have a lot of books in front of me. Uh, of course, I've chosen 10 volumes mm -hmm. and I'm not going to discuss them in order. I don't have any particular order. So these books have made an impact on my mind, as you mentioned earlier. So I will be talking about them mm -hmm. uh, and um, telling people why I think these books are good books to read. And of course, they come from a spectrum of, uh, you know, different backgrounds, topics. They, they don't come from one area, one region. I have fascination with a lot of different things. For example, I love history of Christianity, the first three centuries, right? I love the history of India. I, I'm very interested in Atlantic slave trade or slave trade in general in the 18th and 19th century when it comes to the Western world. Then I have uh, a keen interest in Islam's interaction with the West, historically speaking, right? Then I have um, interest in Crusades, the history of Crusades. So let's start. 
Mm. Let's start before I give all my interests in my list <laughs> out to people. I, I'll start with a very interesting volume which I have in my hand. Uh, this is the life of Tipu Sultan, Tiger. Mm. Okay, this is a recent biography authored by an Australian scholar called Kate Brittlebank. Kate Brittlebank uh, did her PhD on Tipu Sultan, who was a Muslim king from southern India. He ruled a territory called, uh, or the, a state called the state of Mysore. Okay, it consisted of um, a large territory in southern India. Pretty much a lot of southern India uh, was taken by him and his father. Okay, and he was a staunch opponent of uh, British colonialism, in particular the, the the late 18th century. He gave a lot of uh, difficulties and hard time to the East India Company. Eventually, he was defeated in uh, the, the Fourth Anglo-Mysore War in 1799, right? He was a very interesting character, a very, very religious man when it comes to Islam, he was highly or deeply dedicated to Islam and at the same time, a very advanced personality, very progressive in the sense that he believed in scientific advancement. He had his own factories. He pioneered many, many different fields such as um, botany, for example, animal breeding, Okay, investing in silk production, uh, raising the quality of his crops and his harvest. Okay, uh, he even invested in, uh, uh, you know, manufacturing um, a number of different things for, for to supply, to even export to the rest of the world. So he became a very successful economic power. His state became the richest state in uh, the 18th century in India. Okay, and uh, he was seen as a threat by the British East India Company because he posed, uh, no doubt, he posed a threat. So in order to read the details, I'm not going to spoil the story for you. You have to go and read uh, the life of Tipu Sultan, the tiger. She called, I mean, he, everyone calls him the tiger. Okay. Why is he called the tiger? Okay. Why was he given this name? What happened to him? What were his achievements? What type of person was he? Uh, what is the significance of his uh, history? Let's say in the, the the grand scheme of things when it comes to the comes to the history of India or colonial India, please go and read the book. And Kate Brittlebank did her, did her PhD on him and she published her PhD uh, via Oxford, uh, uh, the Oxford University Press. And it, uh, her book was titled In Search of Legitimacy, In Search of Legitimacy. And that was also a biography of Tipu Sultan. But she wrote this particular biography recently because there have there has been a lot of um, debate in India on his life, on his legacy. Uh, the current Indian ruling class uh, or the ruling ideology, if you like, the Hindutva ideology. Um, uh, people who, who are proponents of this ideology, they actually uh, dislike Tipu Sultan. And uh, they tarnish his name. Histo I mean, they're, they're trying to change history in schools and colleges and universities. So there's a lot of propaganda against right. people like Tipu Sultan, Sultan and Aurangzeb, the emperor Aurangzeb in particular. Aurangzeb uh, Alamgir was a Mughal emperor. So there's a lot of propaganda against uh, these two individuals. So to do away with this propaganda, some academics came forward and they wanted to put the record straight. They wanted to write history as it is. Yeah. Kate Brittlebank's book 
is an attempt to do exactly that, right? To put out Tipu Sultan's history as uh, as it is. Right. And uh, uh, another scholar who did exactly the same thing with Aurangzeb, she put out a biography, a short biography of Aurangzeb Alamgir. Her name is Audrey Trush. Audrey Trush, she's an American uh, historian, specializes in the history of India and the Sanskrit uh, legacy of India. So she's a, she's a brilliant scholar too. So this is the first book I want you to recommend. Everyone has to go and check it out. That sounds like a, a must-read, uh, and with no spoilers. I'm impressed. You, sp- you t- t- spoke about the book without giving away any of its exciting content. So that's quite something. Thank you. So my choice, my first choice, is this book. There we are. It's wow. The Meaning of the Holy Quran, translated by Abdullah Yusuf Ali. Now, I was given this. Uh, in fact, this is a new copy. Obviously, it's very spanking new. This is my original copy that I was given many years wow. ago. Uh, whilst I wasn't even a Muslim at this stage, uh, by um, a, a guy at uh, Regent's Park uh, Mosque, uh, um, the guy who runs the runs the Islamic uh, circle there. And I've kept it ever since, and I've used it millions and millions of times, and it's got lots of notes and highlights and whatever. But one of the things, I, this is still actually my favourite translation, even though I'm very much aware of many excellent, perhaps even better translations uh, of that by um, Abdul Halim, for example, of Soas. Many people say that is, you know, the academic gold standard of English translations. And it may well be. I'm not disputing that. But this has a special place in my heart. Why? Well, for many reasons, I like I like the translation. It's in, in slightly archaic English, um, reminiscent a little bit of kind of poetic English or even Shakespearean English. And I like that. Um, but also, especially, is the commentary at the bottom of the page. Um, on every page, there are these comments uh, in the commentary by Abdullah um, Yusuf himself, and I treasure those above all. And I just want, and occasionally, which is really is a unique feature, I think, he quotes some poets, Western writers. He quotes some um, Shakespeare or Dante or Henry Longfellow, the American 19th century poet, to illuminate or illustrate his point. So he's interacting with the Western tradition, as well as bringing to the West um, his deeply learned Islamic understanding of tafsir and the Quran. So for me, this has never been rivaled ever, actually. So I just wanted to share with you just a couple of verses. Um, Obviously, he was English translation and his comments, which, which illustrate just this point. So my first is two verses, one verse, Surah 3, uh, verse 185. As I say, I love the English translation and I love his comments. So uh, 185 reads as follows in this translation. Every every soul shall have a taste of death, and only on the day of judgment shall you be paid your full recompense, paid your full recompense. Only he who is saved far, far from the fire and admitted to the garden, will have attained the object of life. For the life of this world is but goods and chattels of deception. Like that, goods and chattels of deception. It's great, great English. And then a note to this, he actually quotes um, from the American poet Henry Longfellow from his Psalm of Life. Quote, all this world's a fleeting show for man's illusion given. And then he comments, the only reality will be when we have attained our final goal. So for me, this is uh, very, very much a learned um, attempt to engage with an educated Western readership about the treasures of the Quran. And, and that's why I still value it today, even though there are many arguably better translations into modern English.
So that's my first. Absolutely, Paul. Uh, you know, uh, Abdullah Yusuf Ali was a great scholar, no doubt. He was a linguist par excellence. And some of these classical English translations of the Quran will never be old. They will always remain classics. For example, Mamadou Pictol's translation in classical English is an amazing rendition of the Quran, or at least its meaning. Also, Muhammad Asad, who was also a European thinker, uh, who uh, basically became a Muslim. Mm. He was uh, an Austro-Hungarian Jew who later on accepted Islam and did a lot of good work for Islamic theology, including a translation of the Quran. So these few translations will never go old. They will always remain classics the, the, and great. The scandal at the end of his life is that he was discovered by a policeman in uh, in Westminster, where, where I am now, um, one day as an old man, um, clearly not well, um, disorientated. And he That's died. Abdullah Yusuf Ali, right? So you used to do it himself. Uh, well, yes. was discovered penniless uh, on the street. He'd passed out or was very, very sick. Uh, and uh, you know the the, uh, the Pakistani High Commissioner uh, said uh, on hearing of his death that this is an absolute scandal. That such a great great man should yes. die in such circumstances in such poverty, unrecognised for who he was, because he lived in London at that time. So yeah, the end of his life was very tragic, very sad. But his his legacy endures, and we still benefit from it today, as you say. Absolutely, even though he is uh, virtually unknown otherwise, apart from his translation of the Quran, his activities, his life otherwise is very unknown to uh, general people. But uh, he has left behind such a huge mark on Islamic theology, in particular for the English-speaking world, it will never be forgotten. Mm -hmm. And Allah tells us in the Quran that your good deeds will never be wasted. Mm -hmm. They will never be wasted, even though you may have done them uh, in secret or in private. You know, these are your token contributions to uh, the, the the greater, let's say, legacy of Islam, but it won't be wasted. Mm. Uh, and it all depends on your sincerity. And I believe he was a very sincere man. He did mm. this translation out of his, his love for the Quran and Islam. And Allah kept it alive. SubhanAllah, to this day, this translation is being published. Ahmad Didat in particular made it a household name. Yes, you know. Prior to that, uh, only scholars were aware of this. Sheikh Ahmad Idar made it a household name. That translation, he chose that translation. He published it in, I think, hundreds of thousands and, uh, and distributed it. So, moving on to my next book. Mm. Um, my next book is a book that made history. This is uh, a book authored by the late Edward Said. A yep. very, very popular book. A very important the, book. This book important. made history. Yeah. So, Orientalism until this book was written, was a valid field of study. People mm. used the term Orientalism with pride, with a lot of, uh, you know, a, a, a lot of um, uh, credibility uh, attached to it. But after this book was authored, mm. the term Orientalism became an embarrassment, right? Because he exposed a particular approach to the study of Orient in general and the study of the Muslim civilization in particular. Edward Said was actually not a Muslim, by the way. Okay. No, he, yeah. yeah. No, he was he was a Middle Eastern Christian. If I'm not mistaken, he was Palestinian. He was a yeah, Palestinian yeah. Christian. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if he was a Christian when he died, uh, but I'm assuming uh, that he, he was a Christian when he died, but uh, he, he was born to a Christian family in Palestine. Okay. And this is uh, a book 
he authored in the late 1970s, if I'm not mistaken, 1978 was the first edition. And the title is Orientalism, Western Conceptions of the Orient. Yeah. Okay. And he exposes uh, the bias, the prejudices used by this approach to study the Orient in general and Islam in particular. Yeah. So he starts with um, uh, studying some 19th century works, for example, 19th century names. And then those approaches, those biases and prejudices were carried into the 20th century by some scholars who, uh, who inherited the legacy of Orientalism from the 19th century and uh, uh, the 18th century scholars. And that approach remained intact. To, uh, in, in fact, a lot of Modern historians, I believe, still, still suffer from such prejudices and such approaches without pronouncing it, right? But Edward Said, his book kind of pulled the rug from the feet of these uh, institutions and scholars who are using uh, tools pioneered by Orientalists in the 18th and the 19th century. Okay, so again, to read the details and how fascinating this book is, it is very detailed. Very yeah. thorough, very, very powerful treatment of the topic. It is so important. This book is so important that it changed the history of uh, this particular field of study. Okay, mm -hmm. it changed the approach altogether. Scholars had to rethink uh, as to how they approach the Orient in general and Islam or the Muslim civilization in particular. Right. Mm -hmm. So it is a very powerful book. I'm not going to give you the details, uh, every nitty gritty of the book, uh, but you have to go and study the book. It is a must read for anyone interested in the history of Islam uh, and the West or how uh, Islam was perceived by Western scholarship in mm -hmm. the 18th, the 19th and the 20th century. It's a very, very good treatment of that topic. Yeah, Over to you. I, I, I completely agree. And in fact, there, there are um, a number of uh, YouTube videos uh, where, where, you know, he was filmed in the 80s. I think he died in the 90s, but he's no longer with us. But uh, where he discusses his work uh, in, in interviews. And that, that also is very beneficial if you want a, a YouTube account of that. Um, thank you. That's a very good recommendation. My next recommendation is this book, um, which I'm, I read from on YouTube quite often. Muhammad, His Life Based on the Earliest Sources by Martin Lings, who uh, was a, a British writer, a convert to Islam. He worked at the, uh, the British uh, Library. He was an expert in manuscripts and so on. And he has written what many people consider to be the finest biography of the prophet upon whom be peace in the English language. He was a master of English. In fact, he lectured in Shakespeare, I think, in the University wow. of Cairo for some time. Mm. So you can see where the influence is there. And I just wanted to um, read um, just uh, one paragraph from one of the last uh, chapters of the book, just to give you a flavor of, uh, of how he writes. Now, if you want a beautifully written account, possibly, I mean, th this as a biography, stands as one of the great biographies in the English language of any person, I would argue, let alone of, of, of the subject matter he, he, he discusses. It is truly a, a work of, of art, a literary art, I think. So in, in one of the last chapters entitled uh, The Choice, um, he, he writes as follows. The prophet continually spoke of paradise, and when he did so, it was um, as a man who sees what he describes. This impression was confirmed by many other signs, as, for example, when he once stretched out his hand as if to take something and then drew it back. He said nothing, but some of those who were with him noticed his action and questioned him about it. 
I saw paradise, he said, and I reached out for a cluster of its grapes. Had I taken it, ye would have eaten of it as long as the world endureth. They had grown accustomed to thinking of him as one who is already, in a sense, in the hereafter. Perhaps it was partly for this reason that when he spoke of his death, and when he inferred indirectly, as sometimes now he did, that it might be imminent, his words made little impression on them. Moreover, despite his 63 years, he still had the stature and grace of a much younger man. His eyes were still bright, and there were only a few white hairs on his black hair. Yet on one occasion, a remark of his when he was with his wives was sufficiently ominous to prompt the question as to which of them would be the first to rejoin him in the next world. He replied, she of the longest reach will be the soonest of you to join me. Whereupon they set about measuring their arms one against another. Presumably, though it is not recorded, Sauda was the winner of this contest, for she was the tallest of them and in general the largest. Zainab, on the other hand, was a small woman with an arm to match. But it was Zainab who died first of them all, some ten years later. Only then did they realise that by she of the longest reach, the prophet had meant the most giving. For Zainab was exceedingly generous, like her predecessor of the same name, who had been called the mother of the poor. Wow. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's a, a marvellous biography. Um, uh, so I certainly recommend that for everyone to read. Absolutely, absolutely. And w what a scholar he was. Uh, yeah. um, and uh, this is an absolutely amazing book. Uh, very, very much readable. And um, it, it's really surprising me how people have the ability to put huge concepts, big concepts into small words. Mm. Okay. It's like, uh, it's like trying to confine a sea, you know, into a small container of water yeah. and yeah. some people have that ability you know using comprehensive words to describe complicated uh, concepts and you can see that in in the eloquence of uh, martin lings mm -hmm. how he eloquently put down the biography of the process so no wonder it's one of the best uh, actually a lot of people a lot of scholars think that not only that it's it's a great achievement in terms of uh, writing prophet's uh, biography, it is also an achievement in the, the English language. Yes. Okay. It is a masterpiece of the English language. The book, uh, even though it's a book of history and it's uh, yes. it's a biography, but the way the book has been written, the style and uh, you know uh, the language that's used, it's very powerful, mm. very much moving. On to my next book, mm. the history of crusades, a uh -huh. topic very close to my heart. Very, very interesting topic. Uh, so close to my heart is this topic that my MA dissertation was on this very topic. Wow. Uh, how how the Arab historians viewed the Crusaders. Hmm. And I specifically studied three historians. Uh, Bahadine Baha ibn Shaddad, who was a personal biographer of Saladin or Salahuddin. Uh, and 
Ibn Jubair, who was a traveler, Spanish traveler, traveling through the Middle East at the time, uh, seeing what the Crusaders were doing and seeing how the Muslims are coping with all the, the, the difficulties and challenges. Then the third person I studied was Osama Ibn Munqit, uh, his book, Kitabul Atabar. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, that has been translated by Paul Cobb in the English language, and it's been published by Penguin Classics. It's a classic, no doubt it's a classic. Kitab uh, al a book of lessons, if I'm not mistaken, the title is, okay? Or a book of contemplation, something like that, right? But this book is a general history of the Crusades, mm. a very good introduction to the history of Crusades. It's a chunky volume, wow. right? And it, it is by uh, a, a very accomplished scholar of uh, the Crusades, uh, Thomas Asbridge. He's an English uh, scholar. He has studied the history of Crusades. Of course, there's no such thing as a perfect book. There are weaknesses in this book, no doubt, but it is an excellent introduction to the history of the Crusades. So he talks about the first crusade, the coming of the Crusades, to read uh, the contents page. Um, he talks about the the origins of the Crusades, what were, what caused the Crusades, what drove the Europeans to suddenly woke, wake up and start making their way towards the Middle East. It talks about the social uh, causes as well as the uh, the catalyst, if you like. You know, Pope Urban II, the speech he delivered in Clermont in uh, 1095. He talks about that. Then he talks about how the Muslims responded to the Crusade uh, when uh, the second crusade was launched in, in response to the Muslim response. And I don't want to, again, spoil the history of the crusades for you, but if you want to read a good introduction to the history of crusades, this is the book, okay? Uh, no. The Crusades. And another book I would recommend is by Christopher Tyreman. Christopher Tyreman, and uh, it is titled uh, The Holy War. The Holy War or God's War, something like that. So don't, please... Uh, if I got the top uh, title wrong, I've uh, I have the book in my library. I've looked at it. It's an amazing treatment as well. So these two books are very good treatments of the history of Crusades. This one, the Crusades by Thomas Asbridge, and also uh, by Christopher Tyreman. There is another classic which I would like to quickly share with you. It is behind me. Uh, it is by 
a very good scholar, Stephen Runciman. I don't know if you have heard of heard of him, Paul. Have you heard uh, of him? No, I haven't. Sir, Sir Stephen Runciman. He he was a prolific scholar. He his history of the Crusades is one of the best you can say uh, histories of the the Crusades. It was published in 1950s. It is, you know, according to a lot of scholars, outdated in many respects, but it is a classic. It is a classic. It came in three volumes. This is the first volume. Wow. So three I volumes. have all three volumes. So this is another very good history of Crusades. Mm. It's written from a very traditional perspective. And it is a very, uh, generally speaking, it's an objective history of Crusades. So it's a good start as well, even though it's outdated in, in some respects. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you, read, you want to read a modern history of Crusades and Thomas Asprey, if you want to read a classical, traditional history of the Crusades from, let's say, an English point of view or modern English point of view, then it would be Stephen Runciman, Sir, Sir Stephen Runciman, uh, A History of the Crusades. Over okay. to you, Paul. Excellent. Thank you for that. Uh, mm -hmm. My next recommendation is completely different from any of the previous books. Uh, it's this book. Uh, it's a novel by someone called George Eliot, uh, entitled Middlemarch. Now, th th this is uh, many, many people, including many experts, think this is the greatest novel ever written in the English language. Who was George Eliot? Well, George Eliot was not actually a man. Uh, she was a woman. Um, it's not a gender issue here. She really was a woman. And she, her real name was Mary Ann Evans. Uh, in her day, she was born in Victorian England in 1819. Um, she deemed it more likely that she would get published and read by the public if she had a male name. And that's why um, she has George Eliot. There's no issues of transgender here at all. This is a different world we're dealing with. Um, the, this novel, which uh, for me, um, when I first read it, was... Um, an extraordinary experience and it's difficult to put into words um, and uh, it doesn't have a great drama to it. It's, it's a, a study of a provincial life in England, but uh, her use of language and her uh, profound psychological insights into human nature and motivation and her wry humour uh, make it an extraordinary uh, accomplishment. And I just literally want to read to you the opening paragraph um, and it concerns Miss Brooke um, who is perhaps the heroine of the novel. It's basically about her and how she grew up uh, through the experiences she had through marriage and tribulation. Um, but uh, just, just to give you a flavour of the way Mary Ann Evans, George Eliot, expressed herself. Miss Brooke had that kind of beauty which seems to be thrown into relief by poor dress. Her hand and wrist were so finely formed that she could wear sleeves no less bare of style than those in which the Blessed Virgin appeared to Italian painters. And her profile, as well as her stature and bearing, seemed to gain the more dignity from her plain garments, which, by the side of provincial fashion, gave her the impressiveness of a fine quotation from the Bible or from one of our elder poets in a paragraph of today's newspaper. I could go on. It, it is a very elevated, beautiful, eloquent um, use of language, but it is for her great, uh, her profound understanding of human nature, its foibles, its follies, its self-deceptions, 
um, and the way it grows and matures as the human being develops, that I think she, she uh, has enduring appeal. And it's, it is actually a rollickingly good story as well, which I like you, and I'm not going to give any spoilers about. But as I say, this is um, seen as by many as the greatest novel in the English language, and I happen to agree with it. So that's why I'm recommending it. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, in that in that case, uh, Jane Austen was an exception to publish her works in her own name, right? No, absolutely right. Yeah, she was a contemporary. Yeah, absolutely. or even yeah. earlier, actually. So, yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah, and her works are absolutely amazing. They do uh, paint the English society at the time beautifully. But there's actually an interesting side story about uh, George Eliot, as she as she is known. Um, she was um, an atheist, actually, which again was extremely scandalous in 19th century Victorian England. But she was also she was a polymath. She could read German and French. Uh, she was a brilliant woman. And she translated into English some of the earliest uh, German uh, New Testament studies uh, uh, into English to make them accessible to Victorian England. She knew about biblical criticism. She knew about the issues concerning Christology and the Gospels and the history of the early church. Uh, she could read about it from the best German scholarship, and she translated it into English. So she was more than just a novelist. She was a, a scholar uh, and a translator and a facilitator of biblical scholarship in the English-speaking world. Uh, and she had a major impact for that reason as well. So, so do you think uh, her? Do you think German skepticism of the Bible and Christianity in general impacted her mind as well at that time? It, it impacted many Victorians' minds uh, because mm. it was very radically skeptical uh, in Germany, and uh, along with the advent of Darwin and materialism and uh, other movements, it helped to uh, mm. it helped to dethrone the Bible in some ways because of archaeology, mm. literary discoveries, cross cultural comparisons, the realization the Bible in many ways wasn't that special in terms of its. Uh, well, we won't go to the details, but it mm. really shook Victorians, uh, educated Victorians, and and she played a key role in that, in the dethronement wow. of the Bible from uh, the English-speaking consciousness, um, and not not in terms of the general public. Uh, that came much later, if it, if it has at all, even yet in America anyway. But certainly in terms of the reading public, they became aware of uh, the sceptical methodologies adopted by the latest New Testament scholars. Wow. So I do apologize to our viewers if my history bias is uh, is kind of um, you know taking over me. But uh, as you might have noticed, that Paul is sharing books from a number of different disciplines: theology um, and novels, for example. Okay, in the English language, but I'm kind of trying to stick to my guns, as they say, you know, history. Wow. <laughs> okay, and uh, and and moving on from that very last point we discussed on yes. Christian theology. This yes. is an excellent history of christianity it okay. is it is an uh, uh, this is a wonderful book sorry carry on yeah and 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 we were talking about the name earlier it's very different yeah. di difficult to pronounce. Pronounce. Uh, the author's name is dear maid mccullock dear maid or dire maid or dear maid i do apologize to the author if i'm pronouncing the name wrong it's dire maid or dear maid mccullock okay McCulloch. And McCulloch. this is an excellent uh tour de force through the history of Christianity, starting from a very early period all the way up to, I would say, the modern era, yeah. and you know, it, it the the good. I mean, the good thing about this book is that it is very, very academic in its approach, and mm -hmm. for that reason, it may be difficult for people who are not aware of Christian theology, Christian terminology, before reading this book. So it might be a tough reading for those people, but don't give up. 
continue reading because it's a very powerful treatment of the topic. Okay, it's not easy to read. I mean, I will make it very clear. We were discussing this earlier. He's, a, he's an Oxford scholar. He has a style of writing. So he's not as readable as maybe other historians. But this book, for those who are interested in the history of Christianity, is yeah. a must. So even if you have to read it twice, go ahead, do it. It, it is a tour de force through the history of Christianity. In one volume, you can find the history of Christianity from the very early period to the modern age. Yeah, what's interesting about it, he's a professor of ecclesiastical history at Oxford, and he's ordained clergyman himself. But mm. uh, like many Anglican scholars, um, he's fiercely objective and independent of his own confessional biases. So mm. in the sense that he's writing good history rather than apologetics. Um, so, uh, yeah, I certainly would agree with you, Adnan. This is an outstanding book by an outstanding author. Uh, and he, he, there are easier reads than that, but uh, it's definitely worth investing in, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, continuing my theme of different kinds of literature, um, this book uh, is one of my favourites. It's called The Oxford Book of English Verse. Now, this actually has a really nice cover, but I've used this book so much, the cover wore away. <laughs> so it's now just got this black uh, cover. Um, now, this contains uh, poems in English uh, from the 13th century in uh, England up to the 21st, up to the 20th century, actually, not the 21st, um, which has been chosen um, by uh, Professor uh, Ricks, who's a professor in Boston, Christopher Ricks. And um, it contains about 830 poems. Now, uh, several years ago, I decided in a moment of madness to actually read every single poem in this volume, one poem a day. Um, and I accomplished that uh, a, year, a year or so ago. After 830 days, I read 830 poems. Wow. The reason I chose to do this was because, um, you know, otherwise I would like to cherry pick. I'd read the, the, uh, the poems I liked and I ignore the others, but I wanted to to force myself, so to speak, to go through method uh, in in a rigorous way every single top poem in the Western tradition and the Western canon to really acquaint myself whether or not I liked the poem or not initially. And the earlier poems were the most difficult ones because uh, in thirteenth century English is not like modern English. Mm. Uh, but do you know what I found when I tapped in the names of the poems on YouTube, virtually all the poems have been discussed or, or recited or, or read on YouTube videos. So that, that was a fantastic aid to my comprehension. So it was a great experience. And um, I thought when sharing this, you know, what can I read? I mean, what can I share with you? Because there are 830 or brilliant poems in this. So um, I, I came across just one short poem by the English poet um, she uh, Shelley, um, who had a very colourful life indeed, uh, died in Greece fighting whatever, and uh, notorious, scandalous individual uh, in his time. He was in the 18th century. Um, but he wrote um, a, a, an extraordinary poem, which is still very popular today. It is very popular today, which has almost a Quranic kind of feel to it. Um, it's entitled Ozymandias. Strange word, Ozymandias. It's actually a made-up word. I'll just read the poem and um, hopefully I can do it a little bit of justice, probably not. Uh, and, and then um, I'll just give, give a very brief reflection on why I think it's such a powerful story even today. So this is by Percy Bysseth uh, Shelley called Ozymandias. I met a traveller from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone 
stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculpture well those passions read which yet survived stamped on these lifeless things the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed and on the pedestal these words appear my name is ozymandias king of kings look on my works ye mighty and despair nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck boundless and bare the lone and level sand save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app get half gallons of delicious kroger milk for 129 each then get flavorful tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for 249 a pound all with your card and a digital coupon Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hands stretch far away. So Ozymandias is obviously some kind of ancient king and the only remnant of his existence is this kind of uh, big uh, stone in the desert, uh, you know, half sunk. And this inscription that, uh, you know, mocks those, you know, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings, look on my works and despair. Because no one's heard of him anymore. His works have gone. The empire has disappeared from history. And nothing remains apart from this one relic, this one bit of stone in the desert. Um, and so it, it's it's the, the idea of, you know, the folly of power that a man can say, you know, like Pharaoh in the Quran, perhaps, you know, how great I am. I am mighty. I am mighty. Fear me. And yet he is brought low. He's destroyed uh, by God. And only this bit of rock in the desert remains. So it's a fantastic way of, of, of showing the ephemeral nature of uh human power uh and uh and that's why i like this poem i think it, it is a quite islamic in that sense i think uh in its view on life so you know it's amazing you mentioned this and english the oxford book of english verse the Ox oxford book of english by oxford university press you know one of the reasons it's a standard why work on po poetry in english sorry right what, one of the reasons i love london daily is books there are bookshops there. You can walk into a bookshop and you can find books like this. Um, some published in the 50s, some in the 60s, some even before. Um, and we are both book collectors. We can appreciate uh, how important the city of London is for a bibliophile. Only a bibliophile can understand where I'm coming from. Even Britain in general is an absolutely amazing source of books going back all the way to the 16th century. Okay, And, you know, I believe you read from Shirley, I believe uh, English poetry uh, flourished, uh, starting from, of course, I mean, Shakespeare was uh, the epitome of English poetry, no doubt about that. And even he was inspired by earlier poets. But in the, in the 17th century, 17th, the 18th, and the 19th century, I think these three centuries in particular produced some of the best English poets. Tell me about it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And when, when, you, when you read these poets, um, 
it really takes you away from this world. This is it's absolutely amazing, some of the poetry. We, uh, we, uh, we, of course, we don't have time to read all the poetry no, no, in no. one sitting. But uh, I would uh, strongly yeah. advise people to look into the poetry of uh, the, uh, the, the English poets in particular from the 17th to the 18th to the 19th century. These three centuries absolutely produced some amazing thinkers. And, uh, and the reason why in these three centuries because a lot was happening a lot there was a lot happening in these three centuries a lot of things changed in britain in this period right englishmen started to travel around the world uh, there was a lot of maritime activity in the 17th century uh, uh, this was the century of the rise of colonialism as well uh, in the 18th century in particular so englishmen traveled around the world they went they explored and they came back with many thoughts and many many different experiences yeah. And that really impacted their way of writing. So the next book mm. is actually two books by the same author. I'll mention them together. Yes. They are both on different topics, of course. Okay, but they are uh, interrelated, you can say. Okay, William Dalrymple, he's an excellent scholar, mm. excellent author, very readable. Uh, in fact, one of the best historians of our age the reason why I say that is because his books are very readable. You open the book, you start reading. His style of writing is so amazing that you will you will just you will get immersed into it. You will you will be taken in. Okay, uh, people talk about J.K. Rowling and her style of writing. Harry Potter, uh, I can believe them. I haven't read Harry Potter, uh, but I can believe them. Why they feel that she's an she's an absolutely amazing author because she just takes you in, right? She just pulls you into the book. William Dalrymple uh, is a historian, and um, uh, I think he has written uh, uh, other books on other genres as well. Uh, but I, I will talk about history in particular. This book is on the rise of the East India Company as a colonial power in the 18th century. And the book is titled Anarchy. And rightly so. It is titled Anarchy because the 18th century was the century of anarchy in India. After the decline of the Mughal Empire, the last strong Mughal emperor uh, already mentioned in this feat, Aurangzeb Alangir, died in 1707. Mm. And after his death, the Mughals could not hold on to power for much longer. Within the next 50 years, the Mughal Empire was already on its knees. Why is that the case? Uh, you will have to go and check it out in the books of history. And uh, of course, if I start describing history, it's going to turn into a lecture. So... Uh, this book is basically describing or telling the story of the East India Company, a European uh, trading uh, enterprise, uh, in particular British trading enterprise, launched in India, uh, of course, with the, the intentions of trade. Um, but later on, it became an imperial power, a colonial power. Mm. How that happened, how, do, how were the British uh, men Mm. Uh, able to travel to India, in particular, Calcutta, the city of Calcutta and current day Bengal. How were they able to establish uh, their factories and run successful business and later on even uh, create an empire within India is all described in this book. Mm. And it's a very negative history, by the way. Let me let me let yeah. me explain. I mean, he's not making things up. He's telling history as it is. But it is a very disturbing read how uh, a lot of 
you know, unfortunate things happened in this century. There's one, there's one book, actually, I want to read and get, actually. This is, yeah. this is the beginning of the takeover of India by by Britain. It didn't didn't start out like that, but, but it ended up being that uh, over time. Uh, Absolutely. And, and Paul, I strongly recommend this book. It's mm-hmm. going to really, really blow your mind away, you know, and you'll think, huh? I mean, how, how can things like this happen? It was a phenomenon, how the East India Company came to power and what this company... Uh, it was a trading company, actually. You know, what really yeah. shocks historians and readers is that it was a trading company. It's like Goldman Sachs, let's say, right? Yeah. It's like uh, another big company or uh, Alibaba or uh, mm-hmm. Amazon, let's say, right? Goes and takes Amazon, <laughs> for that matter. Mm-hmm. Okay, they occupy Brazil, they occupy Peru, and uh, wherever the Amazon, large territory, like a continent. So how a merchant enterprise, how a trading company became an imperial power for almost a century, for a hundred years, until 1857, of course, because that's when the Indian mutiny took place, the Indian mutiny, uh, the Indians mutinied against the company rule because it was so oppressive. Uh, And thenceforth, the British government, um, ruled by, of course, Queen Victoria at the time, took over. They took over the Indian uh, government and they started to run the government for the Indians, right? But this book is absolutely amazing, okay? And uh, I was I was so looking forward to uh, this book, uh, you know, when it was uh, basically in the pipeline, it was announced, it was on the author's Twitter handle, and I, w- I happened to be in Australia, okay, at that time, when the book was released or when it was published, uh, and I bought it immediately from one of the Australian bookshops. <laughs> So this particular volume came from Australia to my library. The other book I want to very quickly mention is by the same author. Um, this is a biography of the last Mughal emperor, Bahadur Shah Zafar, who was basically, you can say, an honorary ruler. He was not a ruler in the real sense of the word. Uh, he, he didn't have much power. He didn't have much influence in India. But he was like an honorary ru- ruler. He was a ruler in name, as uh, if you like, right? Uh, but even then, after the Indian mutiny happened in 1857, uh, things changed politically and uh, he was indicted as one of the instigators wrongfully. Uh, unfortunately, he was not involved um, and uh, he was indicted wrongfully, uh, unjustly. And he was put on trial. He was exiled to Rangoon, current day Burma, and he died there in 1862 in very, very difficult circumstances. He was an excellent poet. He was an absolutely amazing poet. One of his verses is, I will read in the Urdu language, um, and I will translate it. Zafar Adami Uskona Janiega, Hovo Kesa Hi Sahibe Fehmo Zaka, Jisi Ash Me Yade Khodana Rahi, Jisi Taish Me Hove Khodana Raha. So I will translate. Oh, Zafar, do not consider such a person a man who does not remember God in. Uh, uh, basically when he's living a good life and does not fear God when he's in anger, when he's angry. So uh, in Urdu language, it sounds a lot better than the English translation of mine. But this is the biography of that man, the poet, the philosopher, um, you know, a mystic uh, put together, a very, very interesting character. And at the same time, William Dalrymple does a genius thing. While telling the story of the, the emperor, Okay, um, uh, the last Mughal emperor, for that matter, officially speaking, without much power, 
he tells the story of the Indian Mutiny as well, which took place in 1857. It was a very important episode in the history of India. It is called the War of Independence. From the Indian perspective, is the War of Independence. And from the British perspective at the time, it was the the great Indian rebellion or the Indian mutiny or even the Mohammedan rebellion, as it was called in the 19th century. Over to you, Paul. Amazing. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Um, well, we're almost on the same subject now because this is a history book. Um, it's this one called The Historical Figure of Jesus by E.P. Sanders. E.P. Sanders is one of America's great uh, New Testament scholars. He's still alive. He's very elderly now. Um, and this particular work is probably, in my view, one of the best single volume introductions to for the general public on what scholars do when they investigate the historical Jesus. Uh, absolutely seminal work. It's got uh, rave reviews by leading scholars on the back, so I highly recommend it. And um, I just want to read to you uh, just a few sentences uh, which uh, can shake the world of a Christian who is a simple, pious Christian who's not perhaps familiar, who is not familiar with what scholars have been saying for the last two, three hundred years. And this is dynamite stuff if you're not familiar with it. And you have if you and, and I was a Christian when I was a Christian, I had to deal with this. And it can be psychologically very traumatic even to try and come to terms with what mainstream scholars are saying and what E.P. Sanders said here. And what he's doing here is talking about the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and how the first three Gospels called the Synoptic Gospels uh, present Jesus in a certain way. There's a certain uh, similarity between them. They Jesus more or less uh, says the same things in the same way. And then there's the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, which is very different. Uh, if you compare and contrast them, Jesus there speaks very differently. There's a different understanding of his message uh, and his different Christology and so on. And E.P. Sanders says this, and I really simplify the issues here. He says this, though, on page 70. It's impossible to think that Jesus spent his short ministry teaching in two such completely different ways conveying such different contents and that there were simply two traditions, each going back to Jesus, one transmitting 50% of what he said and the other one, the other 50% with almost no overlaps. He's contrasting the synoptics with John here. Consequently, and this is the punchline that's a bit dynamite, for the last 150 years or so, scholars have had to choose they have almost unanimously, and I think entirely correctly, concluded that the teaching of the historical Jesus is to be sought in the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and that John represents an advanced theological development in which meditations on the person and work of Christ are presented in the first person as if Jesus said them. Wow. If you didn't know that, that will blow your mind if you're a Christian. So basically, John represents the the meditations and reflections of that author. So to give you an example, and this is an example that scholars give, it's not my example. Uh, the author might have thought that Jesus would thought that Jesus was the light of the world. Ah, oh, he's my light of the world. Therefore, they John put these words on Jesus's lips. So in John's gospel, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But this is actually a confession of what the author believes about Jesus. And as E.P. Sanders says, 
uh, the, the 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 person and work of Christ, Christ is presented in the first person as if Jesus said them. So in a sense, we need just to change the pronouns to get the uh, the real sense of what's going on there. Uh, it's what the author of the gospel believes. It's a statement of faith rather than a statement of history about the real Jesus. Um, so I recommend this book, and not because it's it happens to be quite convenient if you are Muslim, but it is, but because it is an excellent work of scholarship and it's a great introduction to uh, a mainstream Western understanding of the historical Jesus. I recommend that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ibi Sanders is an absolutely amazing scholar, not because uh, he favours the Muslim theology, he actually does not, uh, but he, he explains history as he sees it. And he's absolutely right that historical Jesus, according to most scholars, is to be sought uh, in synoptic tradition rather than the Gospel of John, which is uh, which represents high Christology, as scholars put it. On to my next book, Paul. A very, very fascinating, interesting volume. I don't know if you have come across it before. I've talked about it a number of times. Uh, of I've just come at that. That portrait on the front is by, I mean, I'm sure you'll say who it is, but that's to be found in the National Portrait Gallery near Trafalgar Square in London. And I've often seen it. You can go and see it free for charge. It's a very stirring, impressive portrait of a Muslim. Uh, sorry, I'm taking Exactly. Long. Absolutely. I've seen the portrait there as well. This was painted by an English uh, uh, artist. I forgot his name, but it's it's a very imposing portrait. Yeah. Uh, with this gentleman on the cover here. He is Ayuba Diallo. Okay, Job Ben Solomon, also known as Job Ben Solomon uh, among the Eng English circles at the time in the 18th century, right? His story is also told in this particular book. So this book titled Servants of Allah is a collection of biographies of Muslim slaves kidnapped from Western African coasts taken across the Atlantic Ocean to the Americas and put into slavery, right? And this book tells the story of Muslim slaves in particular. Uh, and uh, she obviously found the author is Sylviane Adioff. Sylviane Adioff. She is an absolutely amazing author. She's done an amazing job in this book. And she has found many histories of these Muslim men kidnapped from West Africa and brought to the Americas. One of them was, of course, Ayub ben Solomon, who you can see depicted on the cover, painted by an English artist. Now, you may be thinking, what was he doing in England if he was taken to the, to the Americas? This, is where, this mm -hmm. is where you have to read his biography in this very book. Uh, and the story is told in absolutely amazing terms, right? Uh, there was also a special biography written for this individual, uh, and that biography is titled The Fortunate Slave. The Fortunate Slave. It was published by the Oxford University Press. You can go and read that biography if you are specifically interested in this individual. Uh, Job Ben Solomon or Ayuba Diallo. He was a scholar yes. of Islam. Yes. And he, what you can see in his... Uh, uh, neck hanging is a copy of the Quran uh, written in his own hand from memory uh, wow. and he wrote, he transcribed this copy in Britain according to most records. So how he ended up in Britain, what happened to him, where was he taken from, where was he taken, what happened to him uh, in uh, that territory, for example, he was taken to Maryland in the US. How did he end up in uh, 18th century Britain? How did he become a celebrity 
for that matter, in Britain, walking around the streets of London, attending lavish parties and talking to the English elite at the time, and then getting painted by one of the English elite artists, uh, uh, so much so that his portrait to this day is, uh, is, is, is an attraction in the National Portrait Gallery. Yeah, it's it's a, there in London. It's a prominent place. Uh, you can see it today. I've seen it many times. I, it's endlessly mm. fascinating. But what also I find interesting uh, you, is subtitled uh, African Muslims Enslaved in the Americas. It is that, you know, many kind of white Christians particularly say, oh, look at these Muslims coming to America. This is a Christian Christian country and so on. Actually, Muslims were in America before America was even the United States of America. Uh, Muslims were there in some numbers. The numbers are disputed, but they, they could be quite large numbers. But sadly, they were there as slaves and slaves of Christian slave owners. So Muslims have been there from the very beginning um, as slaves of Christians. Um, and this history has been lost uh, to us until quite recently. And books like that are helping to restore the memory of uh, Muslims in America from the various early, early days. So Muslims are not new to America. They were there before, during and after the founding of the United States. But um, they've conveniently been forgotten about, uh, partly probably because of racism and we'd rather not remember. But in fact, even our National Portrait Gallery in London still shows that they existed, both here in England and in the States. And, and there is other evidence, Paul, um, that Muslims had arrived in the Americas uh, two to three centuries before Columbus arrived there. There are uh, inscriptions found uh, in American territory. And uh, later on, Moriscos were brought from Spain to America. There were, there were Morisco colonies, actually settlements in America. Okay, so a lot of people don't know this. Moriscos were actually uh, forcefully converted uh, uh, Christians who who became Christians who became Christians at least publicly, yeah. and they were actually Muslims. They were originally Muslims, Spanish Muslims, and they were taken to uh, the Americas by uh, these uh, Spanish settlers, and they were actually confined to separate places. Uh, general public, Spanish public, was not allowed to mix with them because of the influences they had uh, or Islamic influences they had to share with others. So Moriscos were there. Then in large numbers, Muslims were kidnapped from West Africa and taken to, I mean, numbers run into hundreds of thousands. It, it is estimated close to 30% of the slaves taken from West Africa um, in those four centuries of Atlantic slave trade were Muslims. Wow. Okay, The numbers go as, a, as high as 100 million people yeah. from 1450 to 1850. From 1450 to 1850, 100 million people were taken across the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, out of these, uh, I mean, that's the maximum number. The minimum number is 11 million. So anywhere between 11 to 100 million, no one knows the exact number. No, uh, no. About, you know, 11 to 100 million people were taken to the Americas in these four centuries, and about 30% were Muslims, and many of them Muslim scholars, such as this man. And there were others who are discussed in this very powerful book. You can see some of them wrote manuscripts in their own hands. They left them behind. They were writing in Arabic while they were slaves in America. And they, they held on to their Muslim identity. Whatever remained, they held on to it. They would read Quran in secret. They would, they would pray their salah. They would go, I mean, one of the reasons Job and Solomon, uh, uh, you know, one uh, part of his story is that he was praying in the woods. Mm -hmm. He was praying in Salah, in Salah and one of the, the American boys 
who he laughed at him, started to mock him, and he had to run away. He, he ran away, couldn't take the humiliation anymore. That's part of his story. So another very interesting character uh, discussed in this book is Omar bin Said, who died in 1860s. Okay, born in 1700s, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, his date of birth might be there. Yeah, 1770 to 1863. He was born in 1770, again taken from West Africa to America. Uh, he lived most of his life there. And his story is absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, it is claimed that he pretended to become a Christian to make his life easier. Okay. And then he was given a Bible. His Bible, his personal Bible was found. And... On that personal Bible, he inscribed the durood, the praise of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu to signify, to highlight that he's actually not a Christian. He still believes in Islam, but he's trying to make his life easy in, uh, in those circumstances. So there are some fascinating stories in this book titled Servants of Allah. You have to read the stories of these Muslim heroes who held on to their identity in some extreme, extreme circumstances, very difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, they put their lives in danger trying to hold on to Islam, whatever Islam they understood and remembered. You know, so okay. it's a very powerful book, Servants of Allah. Excellent, excellent read, I'm sure. Okay, in a similar vein to this book by E.P. Saunders, The Historical Figure of Jesus, um, I recommend this book, which is called Forgery and Counterforgery, The Use of Literary Deceit in early Christian polemics by the famous Bart Ehrman, his professor in the States. And this thick volume is over 600 pages, uh, is an academic work. It's not really written for the general public. Uh, it's written for other scholars. But I have read every single word of it because it's such an important work. And this, this again, like the E.P. Sanders book, is really, really uh, subversive and explosive if you're not familiar with um, New Testament scholarship. This is mainstream work. If you're a simple, pious Christian and you trust the New Testament, um, this book will, will, I think, challenge your faith deeply. And I don't say that with any relish. It's just a fact. This is the nature of the work. So, so what does this book actually highlight, Paul? What right. does it actually Exactly. So I'm coming to that. Um, I, there's actually a very good paragraph on the back cover uh, by Elizabeth Clark, a professor at Duke University. She sums up beautifully what it's about. Uh, she says, examining over 50 examples of early Christian forgery and their polemical contexts, Ehrman uncovers the varied motives that prompted ancient Christian authors intentionally to deceive their readers. The sheer magnitude of early Christian forgery startles the modern reader. Ehrman demolishes the claim, and this is this is academically actually why this book is so important. Ehrman demolishes the claim that forgery was an acceptable literary practice in Greco-Roman antiquity, as well as scholars' attempts to explain away its prevalence in early Christianity. Ehrman's remarkable and comprehensive account of a misunderstood practice is unparalleled in English language scholarship. Now, um, I'll just mention in a second the books that uh, Ehrman concludes uh, are forgeries. If I mention it now. So the new, these are New Testament books, uh, and he, these are the books that he deems to be forgeries. The Book of Acts, Paul's letters to the Ephesians, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 
and Jude. These are all seen as forgeries. What is remarkable about this book is because if you look at standard Christian um, introductions to the books I've just listed, it's well known that these books are not by the authors they claim to be. So, for example, 1 Peter or 2 Peter purport to be, claim to be, letters by the Apostle Peter. Now, the, the scholarly consensus is they're not. They're, that's called pseudepigrapha. But the excuse given is that, oh, it doesn't really matter because it wasn't forgery in the bad moral sense that we would say today. This was an accepted ancient literary convention. So let's not get too het up about this. What Bart Ehrman does in his extraordinary work um, is to show that this is a complete fiction. There is no evidence in the, the ancient people, the ancient church, ever thought that this was an acceptable practice. On the contrary, forged letters or letters uh, in the name of someone else, a famous apostle by uh, in, in that name, but, but actually written by someone else, that was condemned in the early church. And there's a famous story um, which... Uh, 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 Bart Ehrman recounts of Paul's third letter to the Corinthians. If you look in the Bible, there's 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. There's a third letter of the Corinthians in the third and fourth century. There was a deacon who was writing, actually creating third letter. Uh, now, we know this because he was discovered by his bishop. He got very, very upset and said, why are you writing this letter by Paul? You're just creating it there. And he said in his defense, I, I do it out of love for Paul. I do it out of love for Paul. That was his excuse. But it was a forgery. When it was discovered, it was exposed and condemned. And that was the standard response. So if the church had known uh, later on that the letters attributed to Paul, like Colossians and Ephesians, or to Peter, like 1 and 2 Peter, or Jude, like Jude, or John, like 1 and 2 John, were actually forged, it would not have accepted them and they would not be in our Bibles. So the bad news, I'm afraid, is and we have this problem in Islam to the extent that there are forged hadith. And this has been accepted and recognized right from the beginning and dealt with very um, ex uh, competently and in a scholarly way from the beginning. And they have been rejected and classified as fakes. But Christians haven't really done that with the Bible even now. And so we have forgeries in the Bible, which are well known to be forgery by scholars, most of whom are Christians, but most Christians have no idea. So this, if you want, uh, I say this is an academic work. It's not easy. It's not It's written for academics, but it's really worth reading. If you want all the massive evidence that not only do these forgeries exist, but they were seen as reprehensible. They were egregious forgeries. They were not accepted in the ancient world. And if they had known about them, they would have dismissed them and condemned them out of hand. So that's why I recommend that book. It's explosive reading. That's definitely on my list of uh, readings. Uh, actually, one of my priorities now, Paul, absolutely fascinating. That topic is very close to my heart. Okay. I, I'm completely fascinated by such ideas and such phenomena. Um, okay, so next yeah. book from me is a very powerful um, read for anyone interested in the history of Islam, um, in Britain, or the influence of Islam, or things Islamic, or the Islamic civilization for that matter, on Britain in particular. The book is titled uh, The Matter of Araby in Medieval England. Mm. Okay, it's published by the Yale University Press. It's an academic book. The author is Dorothy Metzlitsky. Okay, 
Dorothy Metzlitsky. I don't know if you can see the, the name of the author. Okay. Yeah, it's there. Dorothy Metzlitsky, right? This book basically treats the matter of Arabi in medieval England. Uh, to uh, highlight the, the title again, she talks about Arabic scholarship in Britain, in medieval England, uh, how Englishmen were traveling to Muslim lands. They were learning the Arabic language. They were learning from the Arabs in Spain and Sicily and possibly beyond in some cases. And coming back to the, to, to, to the British Isles and they were contributing to the, the, the development of the English uh, intellectual um, you know, class, you can say, right? So there were many scholars at that time from Britain traveling to Muslim lands to take this knowledge from the Arabs. When I say the Arabs, I mean that includes the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims. Absolutely. All of them were called the Arabs. Mm -hmm. People in Spain who were teaching in the Arabic language, who had freedom to teach, as we know, in Spain for some time, things were very... Um, prosperous uh, Jewish and Christian scholars flourished uh, in Muslim institutions. They took knowledge from Muslims and started to teach. They themselves became masters. So when I use the term uh, the Arabs, I mean all of three religions working together for the common good of humanity and particularly their own societies, right? So in this case, if I read the contents, you will get an idea how she talks about this particular phenomenon. The first heading is the transmission, the Crusades, Arabian culture in Sicily, Arabian culture in Spain. So she introduces what was happening during the Crusades and then uh, how the Muslims uh, were basically flourishing in Sicily and Spain. Then the second heading of, of the contents is Arabum Studia or Arabum Studia in England, right? Early translators and the state of learning. Walker of Malvern and Petrus Alfonsi. She talks about these individuals who transmitted this knowledge to Englishmen, such as Adelard of Bath, Robert of Ketton, who actually translated the Quran into Latin from the Arabic language. Okay, mm -hmm. there is a specific book on that particular topic if you want to study that particular phenomenon, the translation of the Quran from the Arabic to the Latin language. And the book is titled Reading. Um, uh, reading the Quran in Latin Christendom, reading the Quran in Latin Christendom. And that book discusses Robert of Ketan and his translation of the Quran. Then there is another individual, uh, Dorothy Metzliski addresses in her book called Daniel of Morley. Very interesting man, very interesting personality. He wanted to study philosophy. He left Britain, went to France, and he found French um, monks teaching philosophy. Didn't find them to be very attractive, very learned. He actually writes that in the preface of his book, Philosophia, and he highlights the fact that these men, as learned as they pretended to be, they were basically nothing like, you know, I mean, he insults them, not so many words. So he, then he states that he heard of the Arabs in Spain and those masters of philosophy, I traveled to them, studied with them. And then this man comes back to Britain, establishes schools of philosophy in Oxford. Later on, these schools became the Oxford University. Okay. Wow. Daniel of Morley, she talks about. Then Roger of Hereford. Okay. Alfred, the Englishman. And mm -hmm. Roger uh, Bacon. Okay. Roger Bacon is a very famous English philosopher, of course, uh, from the Middle Ages. He was an Arabist. He knew the Arabic language, living in Britain, in England, uh, in the 13th century, if I'm not mistaken. Michael Scott was another very interesting character 
alive at the time. So Dorothy Metzliski is talking about these specific examples of Englishmen traveling to Muslim lands during the Middle Ages um, in the 11th, the 12th, and the 13th century and taking knowledge from the, the Muslim. Then she, the third heading is Doctrina, Arabum in England. Okay, the introduction of Aristotle. She explains how Aristotle and his writings were introduced to Britain or to English scholarship at that time through Arabic translations and commentaries. Then uh, Adilard's work questions natural, uh, natural, natural, na I mean, it's in Latin, so my Latin language, I don't know the Latin language, but it's a book she mentions, question, natural questions, basically, natural questions. Then she talks about Arabic science uh, in the fourth chapter in the English uh, literature of the Middle Ages. So there is a part two as well, the literary heritage, heritage, Arabian source books, okay, in Britain, history and romance, and there are other topics he discusses. So it's a very powerful treatment of the Arabic literature and the Arabic philosophy and the Arabic uh, works for that matter. Anything written in Arabic, produced in Arabic in Spain and Sicily was uh, very much valuable for English scholars who traveled to these lands and took this knowledge from the Muslims and Jews and Christians, came back to Britain and taught uh, their countrymen about these sciences. So she addresses that very history in this very powerful book, The Matter of Araby in Medieval England, Dorothy Metzlitsky. I hope you will enjoy the book. Yeah, I was must read. It's a must read. Yep. Uh, my next uh, book uh, is this classic called Islam and the Destiny of Man by Guy Eaton. Um, now, e Eaton died several years ago. He was um, he had been a Muslim 50 years when he sadly passed away. Uh, he had a very distinguished career. He was a British diplomat. Um, he was an author of several extraordinary uh, books on Islam. He was a consultant at Regent's Park Mosque, uh, uh, where I know you and I are now, but both go occasionally, um, and uh, a popular uh, speaker as well. But this particular book is very special for many people, particularly English-speaking people who uh, read it and become Muslims. It, it, it's, uh, uh, it results in many conversions to, to Islam. And um, like uh, Martin Lings, uh, he knew Martin Lings, they were friends. He's an English convert who had an amazing facility with the English language. And I think this is one of the most beautifully written, if not the most beautifully written book in the English language um, about Islam. And it's a very general uh, introduction uh, for the uh, general public. It talks uh, about, uh, obviously, the Quran and the, the, the Prophet Muhammad, upon whom be peace, uh, and many other subjects as well. And I just want to share with you um, a couple of paragraphs to give you a flavor of um, how he writes um and it's a good i recommend this book even for muslims actually if you want a a very refreshing take uh, a very profound take on uh, on faith uh, it's certainly worth reading and and everyone i know who's read this uh speaks extremely highly of it i've not come across anyone except a few ignorant people who say oh i can't i don't understand it you know obviously these people their hearts are veiled from its truth um anyway on page 73 um guy Eaton writes uh, the following and it's a tip of classic guy eating this classic guy eating. He says, every man and woman is inwardly a city in which there are many factions, one gaining the upper hand today, another tomorrow. 
the only people in whom this warfare of the factions is appeased are, on the one hand, the saints, those wholly integrated beings who have brought all such contrary forces under the control of the highest principle, and, on the other, those who have surrendered entirely to the most powerful and brutal faction in their makeup, and so enjoy an illusion of peace worse than any warfare. Between these two extremes lies a battlefield. The fact that there are many people who live quiet lives of routine, neither looking to the right nor to the left, neither upwards towards the heavens nor downwards into the abyss, is misleading. For there are forces lurking within everyone which may remain dormant so long as no great prize is within reach, or so long as no great danger threatens. When a man turns to religion, these forces are awakened, whether for good or ill, and if for ill, may try to seize hold of it and use it for their own purposes. No ego is more inflated than the one which feeds upon religion and justifies its greed and its fury in religious terms. It can even happen that the inhibitions which restrain murderous impulses in those who live only for this world are released when the opportunity arises to murder in the name of God. Those who seek paradise walk a tightrope over hell. The greater the prize, the greater the risk. But light is light. By its very nature, it shows up things we prefer to keep hidden. It reveals and exposes, as does that judgment to which we must all finally submit. The agnostic has a very curious notion of religion. He's convinced that a man who says, I believe in God, should at once become perfect. If this does not happen, then the believer must be a fraud and a hypocrite. He thinks that adherence to a religion is the end of the road, whereas it is in fact only the beginning of a very long and sometimes very rough road. He looks for consistency in religious people, however aware he may be of the inconsistencies in himself. The fact that we do expect consistency of others and are astonished by their lack of it is sufficient proof of our awareness that the human personality ought to be unified under one command. Perhaps the most difficult of all the requirements of religion is simplicity. For the simple man is all of one piece. He does not leave bits of himself scattered all over the landscape of his life. He is, so to speak, the same all through, whichever way you slice him. And it has been said that only the saint has a right to say, I. The rest of us would do better to confess, my name is Legion. And Guy is actually quoting from Jesus' words in the Gospels. This inward simplicity, the multiplicity, sorry, this inward multiplicity, the multiplicity of the factions, is like an echo within the human personality of outward 
polytheism. On the one hand, many persons within an, a single envelope of flesh. On the other, many gods in a fragmented universe. Monotheism is not only a theology, it is also a psychology, as is the Shahada, la ilaha illallah, end quote. And that, that crescendo, monotheism is not only a theology, it's also a psychology. It integrates the warring factions of the soul into one principle. I mean, it's just amazing stuff, I think, anyway. So I recommend Islam and the uh, destiny of man to non-Muslims and Muslims as a very enriching experience. was for me. I've never uh, read Guy Eaton before. I have, uh, I've heard him talk um, in, in different places. I mean, not personally but i've watched and heard his recordings but never read read him before and this was fascinating this is absolutely amazing i mean it was so eloquently put mm. his thoughts are so um you know powerful so strong and so intense so one really has to step back even to understand what he's trying to say to internalize what he's yeah. trying to say yeah. takes you a while. get up to his level a little bit to try and actually appreciate what he's trying to say once yeah. you're going to gear yourself up then mm. it's an amazing experience absolutely moving yeah. on to my next yeah. book uh, i was talking about the muslim civilization and its impact on britain yeah. uh, if you want to uh, read more deeply on that topic, the, the impact of the Muslim civilization uh, on the Western world in particular, generally speaking on France, Germany, Britain and Italy and all of these lands put together. This is an absolutely amazing, fascinating book on that topic. It's an encyclopedia of information. And let me explain. That's what it is. It's an encyclopedia of information. It's not an academic book. Its approach is very aggressive, often polemical. Um, uh, and it 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 has a very strong tone, right? It has been written by an Algerian Algerian scholar who wrote this book, compiled all this information in one volume. It's an encyclopedia of information, and his uh, name is Salahuddin Al Jazairi. S E Al Jazairi. It's a very difficult book to get hold of nowadays. It okay. it is available online, if I'm not mistaken. The hidden debt to the Islamic civilization. The hidden debt to Islamic civilization. Uh, why I say it is an encyclopedia of information, it is filled with references from academic works and work, works of history. So the tone of the book, the tone of the volume is very aggressive. I am warning everyone who reads it. Uh, I'm not saying it's an academic book or it's, it is an academic approach for that matter. Okay, uh, this book wouldn't pass for a PhD in a university because this tone is very aggressive, very polemical. Okay, but as far as information is concerned, it is an encyclopedia of information. So you can use it for information, to gain information, to gain ideas, to gain facts, yeah. but not necessarily academic rigor. So it's a very powerful book with much information on uh, the contribution of the Muslim civilization on the Western world or towards the Western world in particular and the rest of the world in general. Very, very important volume for everyone to look at, inshallah. Okay, good. Um, my uh, next book is this one uh, called The Critic of Pure Reason by uh, Immanuel Kant. Now, I, I didn't know, I wasn't sure whether or not I should recommend this, but I thought at the end of the day, yep, I'm going to recommend it because it's an enormously special book um, and uh, it's remarkable. And a Critic of Pure Reason was published in 1787 uh, by the German philosopher Immanuel Kant. He was one of the great Enlightenment thinkers. 
And uh, apologies in advance. This book is, um, for me and for many people, is the Mount Everest of intellectual pursuits. This is a very difficult book to read. Um, it's the most challenging book I've ever read. Um, and it really, I've taken several attempts at the Mount Everest before I managed to get somewhere, somewhere up it. But it had a huge influence on Western thought and the Western tradition. It's found, it's considered by most people to be the founder of modern philosophy. Um, and it's concerned with metaphysics, uh, epistemology, uh, mainly epistemology and uh, to some extent ontology as well. And, um, if you want, uh, the, the, as I say, the, the ultimate experience of Western philosophy, modern Western philosophy, this is the book to read. And just to briefly, in three sentences, sum up what he might be about, um, he, he seeks, and I'm going to use his language here, so forgive me, uh, Kant seeks to determine the limits and the scope of metaphysics. And he explains that by a critic of pure reason, he means uh, a critic of the faculty, this is his words, of the faculty of reason in general, in respect of all knowledge, after which it may strive independently of all experience, he says, and that Kant then aims to reach a decision about the possibility or impossibility of metaphysics. Now, that's easy, by the way, compared to what he writes in here. Um, but he's basically, uh, if I can put it in very, very short, he's trying to establish modern knowledge, modern scientific knowledge on a firm, rational basis. And he, he ultimately comes to this extraordinarily brilliant insight into what he calls synthetic a priori statements. I'm not going to define what that means. But once one grasps what he does as a solution to empiricism on the one hand, people like David Hume, rationalism on the other hand, people like Rene Descartes, and the way he advances the discussion in a way that is a mark of phenomenal genius. And I'm in awe of his intellect, but I'm not actually in awe of his philosophy particularly. I'm recommending it because if you want to understand the Western tradition, uh, in all its profundity, this is a really excellent book to read. Islamically, there are many things one could say about it in criticism, but that's not why I'm that's not why I'm recommending it. But I, I, as a monument to intellectual life in the West, it is the Mount Everest of books, and on that wow. basis alone, I'm recommending it for the for the interested reader. But it is one of the most difficult books you could ever read. And I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> it's very difficult. So, anyway. would you would you recommend this book over uh, Bertrand Russell's uh, History of Western Philosophy? Oh God, yeah. No, sorry. Yes, I would. No, but but that, that History of Western Philosophy, which I try to read, it's just a survey of uh, of history of the Western philosophy. This book by Kant is actually engaging in philosophizing uh, and arguing his case, whereas uh, Bertrand Russell's book is more descriptive. All the mm. biases, and I actually found it incredibly dry and uninteresting to read. This is a seminal work of history. If you want to understand the modern world or the ideologies that fed into the Western mindset, Kant is an absolutely key figure to understand. You wow. don't have to read this book, by the way. You can read. I mean, you can read the Wikipedia article on the critical pure reason. Um, so actually, I joke. I call it the CPR critical because you'll need CPR after reading it. You'll need to give you a heart attack. Um, but for those who fancy doing it, um, it, it is an extraordinary intellectual experience. Anyway, that's enough about was that. he himself a deist? Yes. Oh, this is an interesting point. It's interesting, actually. I forgot to mention when he uh, his first uh, PhD thesis uh, was published. People notice a very curious thing about it on the title page at the very top in Arabic. It had the Bismillah 
in Arabic. Wow. In the name of God, the most compassionate, the most merciful in Arabic at the top of his PhD thesis. Why? I've not, I've not been able to find out why he did. He, he was just perhaps being very fashionable. But yet he, uh, I used to think wrongly that he was an atheist. He's actually not an atheist at all. Um, and I'll just quote to you um, just one sentence uh, from the beginning of his book. He says, two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe. What are these two things? The more often and the more enduringly reflection is preoccupied with them. The starry heavens above and the moral law within me. So wow. for him, the starry heavens above, the creation and the moral law within him uh, just filled him with amazing uh, reverence and a sense of awe. And for him indicates the existence of God. But in his book, the CPR, Critical Pure Reason, he does demolish the the uh, or critique the five standard arguments that ultimately come from Aristotle via uh, uh, that, that are popular in the West. He critiques them um, qu quite ruthlessly. Whether or not he is right in his criticism or justifies another question, of course. Thank you, Paul. Okay, great. Moving on to my next book, which is uh, related to some of the books I've mentioned earlier. Okay, Britain and the Islamic world. Yes. A fascinating book on Britain's relationship with the Muslim world, okay, historically speaking. And it has been co-authored by two people, uh, Gerald McLean and Nabil Matar. Nabil Matar is uh, an, uh, he's a specialist on this topic, Britain and the Islamic world, right? So this book is very powerful, very interesting read, and it's published by the Oxford University Press. It's an academic treatment, okay? And the contents, I can read very quickly, so people... <laughs> Uh, who may be interested can go and take this book. Introduction, of course. Then the first chapter is Islam and Muslims in English Thought. Then the second chapter is First Diplomatic Exchanges. Then the third chapter is British Factors, Governors and Diplomats. And the fourth chapter is Captives. The fifth chapter is The Peoples of the Islamic Empires. Number six is Material Culture. And then the conclusion. So anyone interested in this topic, Definitely, you have to get this book, and it's filled with absolutely fascinating details uh, on Islam's relationship or the Muslim civilization, uh, the Muslim civilization's relationship with Britain as an entity. Okay, so because Britain is such an important country in the world today, and we have a large number of Muslims in this country, we have to understand our relationship uh, to this territory. When did, when did it begin? Is it in the 50s or the 60s when Muslims came to Britain in large numbers to uh, work in factories as economic uh, migrants, or it goes back as early as the 8th century, as I've mentioned, uh, offers coin yes. uh, repeatedly in a number of my interactions. So for that, you, you're going to have to look into a number of different books, but this book is a very good start to, uh, to understand Islam's or the Muslim civilization's relationship with Britain in particular. Yeah, I, I do recommend that book as well. I've got it and it's a uh, superb work. Yes, uh, excellent choice, Adnan. Um, mm. my, my penultimate uh, choice uh, is this book uh, by John Milton, Paradise Lost. Um, wow. 
again, if you want to understand the Western tradition, uh, not just its philosophy or its scriptures, uh, I mentioned the Bar Ehrman book, but its poetry. And this has been hugely influential. It became a classic as soon as it was published. Um, mm. And he was born in 1608 in London, as a Londoner. And this book, uh, Paradise Lost, is basically the retelling the biblical story of um, Adam and Eve and the fall and the, the devil and all that, retelling it as an epic poem. And if you like poetry and you like want to know particularly about English literature and language, this book is an absolute must read. And I, uh, I reread it again uh, about a year ago. Um, I was just it's like um, pre-modern sci-fi. I mean, it's a bit like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings combined. You know, his 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 epic use of language and imagery is simply astonishing. Um, but I'm just going to read the um, don't take about one minute or less. Um, the opening words, which I love. Whether or not you can understand everything he's saying, you may understand some things, um, but I just want to give you a flavour of this extraordinary genius um, who probably was uh, a Unitarian as well. Almost certainly he didn't believe Jesus was God. And that's not a view that he would have made public, of course, but we, we can read that from his private writings now. A bit like uh, Isaac Newton, uh, who was a contemporary, actually. So at the beginning of the book, um, he, he uh, outlines his... Um, poem what he's going to write he says of man's first disobedience this is adam of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of eden till one greater man jesus restores us and regain the blissful seat sing heavenly muse that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed in the beginning how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos. Or if Sion Hill delight thee more and Siloah's brook that flowed fast by the oracle of God. I thence invoke thy aid to my adventurous song that no middle flight intends to soar above the Aeonian mount while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. And chiefly thou, O spirit, that dost prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure, instruct me, for thou knowest Thou from the first was present, and with mighty wings outspread, dove-like, sat brooding on the vast abyss, and madest it pregnant. What in me is dark, illumine. What is low, raise and support, that to the height of this great argument, I may assert eternal providence, and justify the ways of God to men. I'm not going to unpack that at all, but um, believe me, it gets into some cosmic sci-fi, um, which is quite extraordinary. So I heartily recommend John Milton, Paradise Lost. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you for that, Paul. Amazing stuff. Okay, the last book for me today is hmm. a book that made history once again, but it is specifically about the history of India uh, circumstances of Muslims post-Indian mutiny. I talked about the Indian mutiny 
1857 or the War of Independence. Mm. And what happened after that was that the entire blame was put upon the Muslims of India. And in light of that blame uh, was written or authored this book, The Indian Muslims. Mm. Are they bound by conscience to rebel against the queen? That's the title of the book. What I have in my hand is not the actual original because the first edition was published in 1871. And if I'm not mistaken, the second was 72, 1872, and the third was 1876. It was a very popular work among British administrators in the 19th century after, of course, the book was published. And then there were many responses written by Muslim intellectuals such as uh, Sayyid Ahmad Khan, Uh, one of the founders of the Aligarh University in India, which became the Oxford of Indian Muslims in the 19th century, in the late 19th century for that matter. Okay, so this is a very powerful book. This shows you how the British Raj, the British colonial establishment after the Indian mutiny of 1857 mm. viewed the Muslims, the Muslim community in general. So it's a fascinating work. It uh, gets into the mind of a British administrator uh, talking about the Muslims and their alleged role in the Great Rebellion. Okay, mm. titled "The Indian Muslims Are yeah. They Bound by Conscience to Rebel Against the Queen?" The author is W. W. Hunter. Okay, a very very important man in yeah. British India. He actually authored many gazetteers. Gazetteer was like basically like a survey of different lands. Uh, Uh, to, for taxation reasons and to gather information. So he was the author of many important gazetteers uh, in India or produced on India. He was uh, an administrator par excellence, no doubt, but he also authored this book. Very, very important book in the history of Indian Islam. Okay, so a must read for anyone interested in that part of the world. Fascinating. Thank you. Uh, my last book um, is by... Uh, perhaps Britain's most distinguished living Muslim scholar. Um, his name is Abdul Hakim Murad, also oh. uh, Dr. Tim Winter. He's a professor mm. of Islamic studies at the University of Cambridge. Um, and he has written a book, uh, this one, with a very uh, streetwise cover uh, called Commentary on the 11th Contentions, a suitably opaque title from Tim Winter, but um, with a very demotic cover. Um, this is basically a collection of essays Um Uh, at the top of which there's always a, a very pithy statement, and then he kind of unpacks that in the chapter. And the chapters are very short. And I just wanted to read you this very, very short chapter, uh, which is headed by Tim Winter. It's about Jesus, by the way. And uh, it's that Jesus did not oppose Rome. So Rome chose him for its God. And he's looking at the the, the, the paradox that the, the Jesus of the synoptic God or the Gospels is a pacifist. And how are Muslims to understand this Jesus of the Gospels? And he says, few are untroubled by the fact that the Gospel authors present Jesus as an un as an apolitical pacifist. Nowhere do they point out that his country was under a brutal military occupation then and now, it seems anyway, which ruled by torture, mass execution, expropriation and the abolition of divine law. Instead, Galilee is generally presented as a peaceful, benign, sunlit land populated by mild centurions and subject only to the occasional tax-collecting annoyances. Jesus curses Jewish scribes in Matthew 23, but is presented as indifferent to Roman excess. 
While some Jews felt obliged to condemn the occupation, the gospel authors claim that he simply said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. The pacifism is unmistakable and striking. He is presented as saying, all those that live by the sword shall die by the sword, and even resist not him that is evil. For the first two centuries, Christians duly renounced the use of force and refused to serve in armies. This early teaching was then progressively abandoned in favour of theories of just war. And in this, evolved Christianity developed a thick and ethic strongly reminiscent of Islamic equivalents. Very true. Can this be explained? asked Tim Winter. Were the pacifists hearing him incorrectly? Unearthing the actual beliefs of the historical Jesus, remember E.P. Sanders' book I recommended, un unearthing these actual beliefs is famously hard. Albert Schweitzer, the great scholar, thought that those who try to, who try, simply end up remaking him in their own image. And early Christian biographers certainly had an interest in deleting the memory of any opposition to Rome. But Muslims hold that as a sign of moral perfection, Jesus cannot have been silent about the evils of the Roman occupation, nor could he have taught that pacifism, taught that pacifism that most churches eventually recognized as unethical. Demonstrating this as historical fact, however, is probably beyond our power. So his, his answer, uh, basically, Jesus wasn't as the Gospels depict him, <clears throat> but would have been a perfect uh, human being, a sinless human being who would have spoken against the injustice of the occupation. But anyway, that's one of uh, many chapters in this astonishing book. Uh, commentary on the 11th Contentions by Abdul Hakim Murad, published by Quilliam uh press uh several years ago and that is my 10th and final book amazing thank you for that paul yeah uh, and it, it has been an amazing episode i mean i've enjoyed it thoroughly listening to your recommendations and of course i'm i'm used to my books but uh, uh, you know some of the things you have mentioned i'll definitely look into them especially that emmanuel kant recommendation yeah. and even uh, forgeries uh by yes uh, by, uh, Part um, and yeah, yeah. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll enjoy you'll enjoy that, Agnan, a lot. There's a lot of meat in that for you to chew over. I must say, and absolutely, absolutely. I think it's a must for me at the moment yeah, because yeah. I'm yeah. Uh, looking into this topic anyway. Ah, so right. thank you very much, Paul. Again, thank you very much. Well, my pleasure. And and likewise, uh, the I made notes here. The William uh, is it Darimple book? I'm not pronounce it. Uh, the one on the the anarchy, the the origins mm. of the uh, East India Company in India. Yes. Uh, particularly interesting uh, to me and several others as well. So thank you for those extraordinary recommendations. And I I, I do uh, hope uh, viewers uh, will also follow up on some of these books uh, because reading is a really good thing. I don't mean watching YouTube videos or TikTok or Twitter. I mean, reading actual three-dimensional books is uh, really uh, important uh, for developing uh, ourselves personally and just enriching and enjoying life more fully, I think. So thank you very much indeed, Adnan Rashid, for coming on this interesting journey, uh, discussing our 10 uh, favourite books. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Paul. Thank you so Bye. much. Bye -bye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.